Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, October the 12th, 2023. This is episode 3092 of the Survival Podcast. This is an expert council Q&A show for the week. Uh, real quick announcement, if you did not hear it earlier this week on an episode, I am in Camden, Tennessee. Uh all through the weekend, including Monday. I will not be back on the air with you again until Tuesday of next week. So this will wrap up the week, and I'll be back next week on a Tuesday uh, for a regularly scheduled program. Today, though, of course, we do have the expert council. And uh, Dr. Paul's uh, team is uh, is off this week, uh, so I don't have a segment from them. I was kind of thin on segments, so I made this work. I'll tell you what I did when I get there. First up, we got the three non-pikers today, Sean Mills, Doc Bones, and Nick Ferguson. Sean Mills will be talking about setting up rainwater irrigation without grid power. Old Doc Bones will talk about dealing with a persistent cyst, which keeps returning. And Nick Ferguson is such a non-piker, he called in from a mountaintop while hunting to answer a question on medications to keep on hand for your animals. Then, since that was all I had, now I actually had another uh, segment from Bones and another segment from Sean. I didn't want to double up on them, though, and I wanted something for next week. Uh, so what I did is I went by uh, Ken Berry, Jeff Lawton, and Tim Toolman Cook's YouTube channels, and found some cool videos you probably haven't seen. And I grabbed the audio out of them, and we're going to have them for the second half of today's show. Uh, Dr. Ken Berry has two tips you can use to help prevent, or if you're already dealing with, slow down the progression of Alzheimer's. I have some addition on that because I know a little bit about this uh, in regards to some of the things Ken's going to mention. Jeff Lawton has a segment on direct sowing versus transplanting trees. This one, you'll know it's a it's from a video because there's a couple of times he's talking about certain tree species. He'll say, well, here we have, but otherwise it'll work fine as an audio. And Tim Toolman Cook, I found a really cool video of his called Seven Things to Do to Make Sure Your Generator Always Starts. So I'll have that. And then I have a question I'm going to handle today on mule deer hunting in Colorado in November from a cabin with no heat. And we're going to assume no power because we really do not have the answer for that yet. Uh, this was an interesting one. It was sent in for three members of the expert council. I decided to take it from my viewpoint today, and I'm not going to go real heavy on gear. I'm going to talk more about the fact that this is a hunting trip in Colorado when it's cold. And I will talk about a few things as far as the uh, property as well. Anyway, uh, we'll get into all of this in just a moment. Real quick. Before we dive into it, let me remind you guys that you can always help support this show just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you'll help us out. You can also help us out by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. You know, join the MSB, the Member Support Brigade. Use some of the discounts every year, get your money back, and effectively it's free and you get to help support the show at no real cost. That's how I designed the program. That's how it works. With that, let's hear from our first expert this week, uh, this time Sean Mills, on how to set up rainwater irrigation without grid power when you don't have enough elevation to do it with pressure alone. 
Hey guys, it's Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com and today I have an expert panel question about rainwater irrigation. Here it is. Hey Jack, I have a question for Sean Mills about irrigating with rainwater. I've recently gotten rainwater harvesting tanks and now I would like to irrigate my gardens with it. The problem I'm running into is that I don't have sufficient pressure to run water through the soaker hose or quarter-inch irrigation tubing that I have connected to my automated irrigation timer. I would like to come up with a simple solution to automate the irrigation in my garden beds that doesn't rely on grid-powered pumps. One solution I've thought of is elevating some 55-gallon drums and using a small solar pump slash float valve to keep them full from the rainwater tanks and irrigate from those drums directly, but I still don't know if this will be sufficient. Thanks for your help, and I can't wait for the solar pumping Kickstarter to get finished. Michael Easley, Abilene, Texas. Hey, Michael, um, one of the things you want to remember here is that you have to have a minimum amount of head pressure for the soaker hose to work and a different minimum head pressure for the drip irrigation system to work. So what I would suggest is taking a look at both your drip system and your soaker system and identify what the PSI requirements are and then going from there. From what I read, most soaker, soaker hoses are going to be in the 10 PSI range and most drip irrigation systems are going to be between 15 and 25. So if you're going to run both of those systems off the same input, you probably need about 20 PSI, and then maybe you need a pressure regulator before the soaker hose. Now, when you're thinking about using elevation to create pressure in your system, you need to remember that one foot of head is 0.433 PSI, and the other way to do that conversion is 2.31 feet of head is 1 PSI. Therefore, if we take the PSI requirement and multiply it by 2.31, we get about 46 feet in height for the drip system or about 23 feet in height for the soaker hose. Now, I'm not sure what the height difference is between where your rainwater is currently stored and those garden beds are, but most people don't put their gardens 23 to 46 feet below their houses. So I'm going to guess that you don't have that already, and, and in order to get the same level of head pressure, you would have to build a pretty decent-sized water tower. Now, since you were already considering a solar water pump to fill the rainwater tanks that are going to be used to irrigate the garden, a better solution might be to use a solar-powered pump to provide the irrigation pressure itself. Based on the testing from the solar water pumping Kickstarter, I would suggest you go with a C-Flow 12-volt pump with a solar panel of at least 200 watts and a linear current booster or MPPT charge controller unless you can find a solar panel that's going to be below 15 volts. But I don't think you're going to find a 200-watt panel uh, that's going to be below 15 volts. Um, so that's why I'm saying you probably need your linear current booster or the MPPT. Um, now, from there, you've got a couple of options. One would be to add a pressure tank and a pressure switch, and then the irrigation timer could work the way it currently does, and the pump would kick on, and then once you hit cutout pressure, all right, the circuit's opened and the pump's kicked off, okay? You just need to make sure that the timer is set so that it's not asking for water when the sun is out. Now, another option would be to introduce an adjustable pressure relief valve so the pump comes on when the sun's out and it just runs as long as the sun's out. It feeds your irrigation system. But then when the irrigation system is closed, the uh, pressure in the pipe builds up, opens up that pressure relief valve, and it kicks water right back into the holding tank. So you're just creating a loop there. And then the last option would be to run the hose from the pump to the irrigation timer and ensure that there is a check valve between how between the holding tank uh, and the, and the uh, pump itself. Uh, so now you pump... Um, 
you know, you pump water through the irrigation system when the, during the day when the pump is on. And if the irrigation valves are closed, then the, um, pressure builds up in the tank itself or in the pump itself. Once it hits its cutout pressure, it cuts off and the check valve prevents water from flowing back into the holding tank and, uh, short cycling your pump. So in that scenario, for a couple of hundred bucks, you could feed this irrigation system uh, without having to build a 46-foot-tall water tower and then have to pump water up 46 feet uh, into that system. So that's probably the, the route that I would take. Uh, and that C-Flow 12-volt pump that you can get for about 50 bucks on Amazon is going to handle this, assuming you don't have a significant amount of length. What we did find uh, with the Kickstarter um, is that Garden hose adds a significant amount of back pressure, and so you want to make sure that you're accounting for that. Uh, I know I'm running a little bit long here, but a quick update on the solar water pumping Kickstarter. Uh, you should have gotten an update last month. We were trying to get everything out uh, in August, and we ended up needing to kick that delivery date back out to the end of September. Uh, mainly due to the fact that we didn't get the money from Kickstarter until several weeks after um, the actual funding closed, and we didn't realize that. We thought, like, okay, it's over, and then the next day we're going to get the money. Uh, we didn't get it for a couple of weeks, and editing is going to take a bit longer than we initially thought. We had a kind of pie-in-the-sky idea, not being movie producers over here, and thought that you know a couple of days of editing would be done, and it looks like that's going to be closer to a couple of weeks. Uh, so anyways, just wanted to give you guys an update on that. Still uh, planning on getting packages in the mail with hats and shirts and USBs and get everything posted online, final product, etc. by the end of September. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so you live and you learn, I guess. <laughs> anyways, thanks for getting the question in. Keep those things coming and I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks, guys. All right, good stuff from Sean. Let's now hear from uh, Doc Bones about a cyst that just keeps coming back and won't go away. Hi, Joe Alton MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Jonathan. How should I treat a stubborn, persistent cyst at home? I've had a cyst on my mid-inner thigh that will not go away. I've treated it by cutting it open, completely draining it, putting antibiotic ointment, and covering it with gauze to allow further drainage. I have continually repeated this process to keep it from closing prematurely, but then it inevitably fills back up. I've dealt with it now for more than three months, draining it at least a few times a week in the hot shower when it feels like it's starting to fill again. I would rather not go to the doctor for them to just do the same thing that I'm doing has never been too painful or shown any sign of infection at all. Besides installing a spigot, what do you suggest, Doc? Jonathan. Jonathan, a cyst usually appears as a bump on your skin. These can vary in size from small, pimple-sized lumps to a much bigger, more obvious growth. A recurrent lump on your leg can certainly be annoying, especially if it doesn't go away the first time you drain it. Fortunately, you've left a little bit of info out that would help me understand your case a little better. In other words, how old are you? What's your general health? How big is the cyst? What's the nature of the fluid that drains from it? Is it clear or yellow liquid? Is it thick? You say there's no sign of infection, so I'm assuming it's not draining pus. Now, I'm also glad it's not too painful. Most cysts aren't, thank goodness, if they're simple cysts. They usually don't cause difficulties unless they're infected, very large, impinging on a nerve or a blood vessel, growing in a sensitive area, or affecting the function of an organ. 
there are different kinds of cysts. Epidermoid cysts are small benign lumps that are filled with keratin. Keratin is a protein that's essential in forming your skin, hair, and nails. And epidermoid cysts occur when something blocks a hair follicle and skin cells build up beneath this blockage. These cysts can look like a skin-colored or yellowish lump filled with thick material. They typically occur on your face, neck, or torso because they can occur really just about anywhere on your body. Then there are sebaceous cysts. These are filled with something called sebum and are less common than epidermoid cysts. They often form with sebaceous, within sebaceous glands, which are part of your skin and hair follicles. Sebaceous glands make oil for your skin and hair, and this is the material that comes out when it's drained. These cysts are most commonly on your face, neck, or torso, and are the result of some kind of damage to your skin's sebaceous glands. Then there are ganglion cysts. Ganglion cysts are round, gel-filled lumps of tissue that usually appear along tendons or joints, especially in the hands, wrists, ankles, and feet. Fluid accumulation can occur due to injury, trauma, or overuse, but oftentimes the cause is actually unknown. It's common, harmless, and doesn't cause pain or difficulties unless it grows and puts pressure on other structures. A similar cyst is a baker's cyst. That's a swollen, fluid-filled sac that's in a particular spot, the back of your knee. These are commonly seen with injuries to knee cartilage. Then there are pilar cysts. A pilar cyst is a skin-colored round bump that develops under the surface of your skin. They usually affect the skin on the scalp, and they result from protein buildup in a hair follicle. Those are just some of the common cysts. In the inner thigh or groin, however, you'll usually see what we call boils or carbuncles. A boil is a painful, pus-filled lump that forms under your skin when bacteria infect and inflame one or more of your hair follicles. A carbuncle is a cluster of boils that forms a connected area of infection under the skin. As you don't complain of pus drainage, I guess it isn't that. So let's say, Jonathan, that you have a simple cyst with clear yellow fluid, or perhaps one of the cysts I mentioned earlier. You've done the incise and drain thing, and it hasn't worked. You've covered the open cyst with gauze, that's a good thing, but you haven't packed the inside of it with gauze, which is the next step. Get what's called iodoform gauze, I-O-D-O-F-O-R-M, gauze, a thin iodine-impregnated strip that is placed inside and packed tight into the cavity of the cyst that sometimes gets rid of the problems, especially if it's related to infection. In the end, however, you probably need to have the cyst removed since you have failed with simple drainage several times. Cysts have walls, and the fact that the walls remain even after the drainage means that the cyst is going to remain and have the potential to constantly fill up after drainage. The walls have to be removed to get rid of it definitively, and you don't have the experience to do it yourself. So I'm going to have to recommend that you see a dermatologist or maybe even a general surgeon, depending on the size, to have the cyst removed in its entirety. This can be done simply. I used to do it in the office with a little local anesthesia and maybe some antibiotics afterwards. I never had a patient cyst come back although some developed others in other places. It should work. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Learn more about infections in Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease and get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at soar.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right, next up, Nick Ferguson on medications to keep on hand for your animals, be they pets or livestock. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with another expert counsel answer for all of you listeners in TSP land. I am currently up on top of a mountain out in the middle of a location um, 
that shall remain a secret. I'm on vacation, but I am going to get y'all an answer from a mountaintop. What medications would you recommend having on hand? Um, this, uh, this listener describes having some issue with uh, one of their pets, um, and they have other livestock, and turns out that the uh, amoxicillin that they were given is something that he could have just bought and had on hand, and definitely. So what medications would I recommend having on hand? Well, I'm not going to recommend things because I'm not a vet or a doctor or anything. I'm just going to tell you what I have and what has helped me with 99% of the pet or livestock medication needs that I've run into in the last several decades. Um, the uh, list I normally have, I, I have some fish antibiotics and I keep ivermectin and fenbendazole. The last two are dewormers. Um, I don't like using them very often, but sometimes it can save an animal's life. Uh, for the antibiotics, I keep amoxicillin, penicillin, and I think this is pronounced metronidazole. Um, so yeah, um, since I'm not a vet and not a doctor, I, and I don't really know the dosing amounts, I'm not even going to attempt to give any recommendations on that. I'm just going to say, you know what? Turns out you can buy those fish antibiotics, and uh, it seems to me like they're all made in the same place because the pills look exactly the same with the same dosages and the same everything. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, use that information how you will. Um, and then uh, just a really quick reminder to email me if you want to get on the consulting tour surrounding Jack's workshop. I may have a spot or two available. Just send me an email with consulting in the subject line. And uh, send that to nick at homegrownliberty.com. I hope that helps. Do good things. All right, next up, this is, again, a video that I pulled off Ken uh, Berry's uh, YouTube channel. On Alzheimer's, and I think this is a really interesting segment. I'm going to let him talk. I'm going to come back and just add a little tiny bit with uh, some stuff that when I first got into keto and paleo and primal and, and carnivore and all of it, uh, I started doing research. Uh, some research that I did led me to some information that kind of really aligns with this in an interesting way. With that, Ken, what can people do to slow down the progression or even potentially uh, prevent the onset of Alzheimer's? If you or a loved one have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, dementia, or you have multiple risk factors or a strong family history of Alzheimer's disease, I'm going to tell you about two things that you can try that have a little bit of research backing them up that could absolutely prevent Alzheimer's from developing, or if, it's, if you've already been diagnosed with it, it could actually decrease the severity of symptoms and decrease, decrease the speed of progression. So this is a big deal. And I don't know why more neurologists and experts in the field of Alzheimer's dementia are not discussing this. If you go to one of the, the Alzheimer's Association's website, there will be big press releases about the latest drug, Agilhelm. But you won't find any press releases about the two things I'm going to tell you about in this short video. So the first thing that you should try if you're trying to prevent 
Alzheimer's dementia or slow down the progression of Alzheimer's dementia is a real whole foods, one ingredient, ketogenic diet. There's actually several research studies uh, that have already shown promise of eating a, a ketogenic diet in both prevention of and slowing the progression of Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, you won't see press releases about that for some reason. I'm not sure why that is. You might have a, an opinion about that. You can tell me in the comments below. But it makes perfect sense that uh, Alzheimer's disease is type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And so if your brain is no longer to, able to efficiently use glucose as fuel, then why not try to fuel it with ketones and fatty acids? That's exactly what a ketogenic diet does. You, you're going to eat a very low sugar diet on a keto diet, and it's going to put you in a state, a physiologically normal state called ketosis, which many people with, with especially early Alzheimer's notice that the symptoms improve greatly when they adopt a and stick to a ketogenic diet. The second intervention that is, is free and easy to try is intermittent fasting. Again, you won't see press releases on the, the Alzheimer's Foundation website or the Alzheimer's Association website, even though there's several research studies that show, that either show that, that theoretically intermittent fasting should help prevent and slow progression or that actually show the part of the mechanism of how intermittent fasting can uh, slow the, the onset of symptoms or slow the progression of symptoms should you already have the diagnosis. So I'm going to list all the research down in the show notes below. And you may flip the tables on me and say, well, Dr. Barry, you may be giving false hope by recommending a ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting. My answer to that would be that's a valid point. But here's why I think it's okay to do that, because I'm not recommending some new chemical that was just recently formulated in some factory somewhere, some chemical lab, and then made in a factory, and then went put through a questionable FDA approval process, and then, uh, you know, advertised millions of dollars worth of ad advertisements to push it towards people who are looking for hope. I'm talking about an ancestral way of eating, a, a, a diet rich in animal fats and animal proteins and very low in carbohydrates with regards to the ketogenic diet. And then I'm talking about intermittent fasting, something that every major religion has done since before recorded history and that human beings have done since we've been a species on this planet. These are not new fad things. These are not new molecules that were invented in a lab. These are just ways of eating and ways of not eating that have some research supporting them that they might prevent the onset of Alzheimer's dementia and they might uh, slow down the progression should you already have been diagnosed. Now, if you've used intermittent fasting or a ketogenic diet to do just what I'm talking about in this video, please, I beg of you, share your story in the comments below. Because you know, as a family member of somebody with Alzheimer's or somebody with Alzheimer's as a diagnosis, you're looking for hope. You're looking for something to try. You're eager to find something that might help fight the Alzheimer's epidemic and slow down the progression of this dastardly disease. So please share this video and share your story in the comments below. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time. So I'm just going to say that fat, especially good fats, or brain food. 
and I can't find the video. So uh, if I remember when I get back next week, I'll try to dig it up again and, 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 and put it out for you. I watched a presentation good four years ago now on this very subject, and it was specifically about MCT oil, medium-chain triglycerides, which are uh, heavily uh, present in uh, coconut oil. Now, not all coconut oil is MCT, but most MCT is derived from coconut oil. So, look at that. And this doctor was presenting uh, results from a study, and he was showing the brain activity of Alzheimer's patients, and these were fairly advanced Alzheimer's patients. And it's it's kind of horrifying because we all know it could be us at some point, you know, as we age that, that deals with this illness. And they're showing brain scans, and they show the scan of a normal person, same age, you know, some of the same are 80s. And the whole brain is kind of lit up in a way. And then they show the brain scan of the Alzheimer's patient, and there's literally a hole in the middle of the brain. Well, there's just no activity. Just nothing's going on. It's like this, this vacant whole of, of, of the brain there's brain matter there but there's no activity going on it's dead and then they would give these people a, a significant amount of uh, mct oil scan their brain 30 minutes later and a lot of the brain that had not lit up is now lit up now it wasn't a cure it wasn't like a person all of a sudden knew exactly everything that was going on in the world but it showed the ability of the, the, the fat to breach the brain barrier and activate the brain where sugar carbohydrate was incapable of doing so. Which I found to be absolutely jaw-dropping amazing. And I, I would say that the main reason it probably doesn't make a huge difference in those people's performance is because the damage is done at that point. How long has that, that part of the brain been inactive not fired right, or even when if it does fire up, it's 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 misfiring. It's not on optimum, but it is working. And so, had that person began using a ketogenic, carnivore, high fat, MCT supplementation, etc., uh, far earlier, uh, at the time of the initial recognition of the symptoms, or before there were any symptoms, it might have a much broader impact. And I know some of you probably are thinking like. You know, as bad as the, the the establishment is and all, like, would they really ignore something that would actually be effective in the treatment of Alzheimer's? The answer is yes, they would. Yes, they would. Every single illness and disease we have is a multi-billion dollar industry. Every single one. Multi-billion dollars. People have been stabbed in the kidneys and killed and murdered for 50 bucks out of a wallet. If you don't think people will let people suffer and die for billions of dollars, you're just not in touch with reality. Anyway, it's definitely worth digging into. Next up, I got, and I have links to the video versions of these three, Ken's, Jeff's, and Tim's that we're playing now in the show notes for you as well. Uh, Jeff had a really great video out recently that I watched, and I thought it would be great for the show. It's on trees and, and, and growing your own trees and whether it makes more sense to direct sow seed in the soil or to transplant seedlings. With that, hey Jeff, take it away. David has a question here. What are the advantages and disadvantages of sowing seeds directly versus transplanting saplings? Are there times when one or the other method would be clearly the better way to go? Well, when you're planting pioneers, like these fast-growing legume trees here, they only grow for about 
five to six years. They're very quick. Um, you can put these directly in the ground. If you've cultivated the ground like a seed bed, so if you're in that situation, they'll work like that. Here's a fast-growing acacias. Now, these seeds have to be scarred or, or put through boiling water before they germinate. They grow very quickly and only live for about seven or eight years, but they're very, very rapid. You would have to plant these into a condition like a seed bed, like a, like a rotary hoe ground. Now, there are also trees like silky oak here, Gravillia robusta, long-term timber tree, very high quality, quite fast, but root band already, right? but definitely grows better as a sapling here, and it will grow quite quickly. Here we have a nitrogen fixing and phosphate fixing casuarina. Now, these won't germinate out there in the field very easily at all. We know that from these type of trees. So we always grow them here, although they're fast. So it's a matter of knowing which trees grow where. Here's a Mexican tree fern. They have a seed that you have to actually clip the hard coat from the germinate. And then they're very, very fast. And they might grow out there in the field, but we know they grow as a sapling easily. So as we move around, here's a very fast rainforest timber. This is blue Kwandong, but it needs to be germinated with a seed that's cracked in a vice. It won't germinate until you crack the hard coat of the seed. So it just depends what it is you're actually growing. So we've got fruit trees. We've got timber trees. Here's some black sapodi. Here's some palms. And we're just waiting for different palms to germinate. Um, I don't think they germinate out there in the field very easily. You'd have to create conditions that were specific to palm trees. But we let us sit in these trays until they germinate, and then we plant them out. Now, as we go around, you'll only find certain trees that will germinate if we cultivate the ground, like papaya. That will, but you've got to actually have it like a garden bed. Now, here are some cuttings. Here's fig cuttings. Now, figs germinate if you have nice sandy soil or just sharp sand and you stick them in. So if you created a sharp sand bed, a lot of sandy sharp sand in the mix, you could stick cuttings in. If you put an irrigator on, they'd probably work okay. And that is actually a fruit tree. So there's one or two like that. So you've got large timber trees here. This is black bean. We're on our 60-meter-high legume trees that are local. It's a huge bean seed. It will germinate if you just cultivate a bit of ground, a square meter of ground out there and push it in. A lot of them will actually germinate out there, but it'll also germinate like this. So it will just depend what it is you want to grow and where you want to grow it and what stage of your development. So here are more fig cuttings. And here they're literally just all poked in to a sharp sand, just sharp sand and nothing else pot. As they germinate, and they start to, well, germinate, they start to grow roots, uh, leaves. There's a leaf coming. You can see that green tip there. Right? Once that starts to grow a few leaves, we'll transplant it from the sharp sand into compost. It'll have hair roots in, and then the hair roots will feed. Instead of having water roots that would rot in compost, they feed. Look, go out looking for feed in the sharp sand. You put them in compost, give them a bit of feed, and bang, off they go. You don't want to grow water roots first on most of your hardwood cuttings. Here's lemongrass, just growing from a little, little rhizome division. They're all different ways that you need to know how to germinate. So 
there are, come outside, right, and we'll have a look at what's growing around us. So around the nursery, I have things like pigeon pea. Now this is pigeon pea, dal pea, Kajanus kajans. If you've cultivated the ground, right, and you've got it like a seed bed, you can plant this in like a bush bean and it will definitely germinate. So it's just knowing which seeds do what, where you are, and how they imitate the fast carbon pathways of weeds, but grow a convenient crop that is useful to your system's development. This is a fantastic one here. And you can cut, cut it, and it regrows, cut it, and it regrows, cut it, and it regrows. And it's also, it's also a grain legume that can eat as a food and a forage for animals. So there's no quick answer to this. But it's just knowing which plants perform the way you want them to perform and germinate the way they can germinate when you've cultivated conditions for them to take off and start to grow. Sometimes it's easier to guarantee success in a nursery. If you have a lot of seeds, you can try some out and also edge your bets and get some going in the nursery. If the big seed, if the big numbers of seeds cultivate out there on the ground, well, you win. If they don't, you've still got some backup in the nursery. That's the way we usually do it. So all I'll say is this. Um, I have a few trees on my property that are volunteers. They were direct seeded by nature. I've got a mulberry right out my office window. I've got some hackberries. I've got some other mulberries, um, various different trees, some black locusts, trees that have self-sown. I even have a peach that I call it the goose peach because the geese probably planted it, you know. And uh, all of them are far and away more resilient than every single tree that's been transplanted. If you can direct sow, you probably should. And I don't even think that it costs us as much time as we tend to think that it does because, like, the mulberry that's outside my window, it's only two years old, and it's bigger around than my bicep, and it's probably 14, 15 foot tall. And it's literally outgrown some of the transplanted mulberries uh, of about the same length of time. So I think there's a tremendous advantage to growing trees from seed, and if you can... Instead of starting seed in a container and then moving it to start it exactly where it's going to grow so those roots are never disturbed and they establish themselves and begin the way nature intended. Next up, Tim Toolman Cook on uh, seven things you can do to make sure your generator will start every time. Today I'm going to answer the question, why isn't my generator starting? I'm going to share with you seven simple things you can check and do to get your generator running right now in under eight minutes. So let's go. Number one, and I have to ask this, but... Is the fuel shut off? Now, if this is a brand new generator to you, you might not realize that there is a fuel shut off on a lot of generators. So if you're not sure where it might be, I'll show you where it is on mine, but grab your manual online or the paper one, look up, does my generator have a fuel shut off? Because 10% of the time, that's all it is. Is it in the run or the on position? Something I didn't realize when I first got a generator was, in order to start it, it has to be in the on or the run position. On the Predator here, you got to flick it to run. On the Furman that's below that, you just got to switch it to an on section. So you got to know, is it in the on or <laughs> is it in the off? Because you'll never get it started. You'll give yourself a bad case of tennis elbow if it's not in the on or run position. Those are the two simplest. Is your oil low? Almost all new generators have a low oil shutoff. 
or low oil cutoff. If your oil's below a certain level, it won't start. That's to save you the frustration of starting it with low oil and absolutely wrecking it. Easiest way, open your dick stip. Easiest way, open your dick Easiest way is to open up your dipstick and check the level. If it looks a little bit low, first off, make sure you're on level ground and then top it up a little bit. Try it then. If that's not the case, we'll move on to simple step number four. Number four, in the words of Toucan Sam, follow your nose. Now open up your gas cap. Don't breathe in really, really deep, but get close and give it a sniff. Does it smell like varnish or does it smell like fresh gas that you just pumped into your vehicle? If it's got kind of a varnish paint thinner smell, you've got old nasty gas in there. Now, you might be able to just add what I like to call seafoam. That stuff works great. But honestly, if it's got that skunky old smell to it, the first thing you need to do, get that gas out of there. If it's a small enough generator, get yourself a container, put it somewhere where a spill won't affect anything, dump it in there. If it's a little bit bigger, you're going to have to siphon it or pump it out of there. So get yourself, fill it full of fresh gas, put a little bit of magic in a can, that's what I call seafoam, in there, and then go from there. Number five, is it a dirty or clogged air filter? A lot of times a generator, when it's running, if it has a dirty air filter, will labor through. But if it can't pull in enough air to get started, because of a dirty clogged air filter, it's not going to start the next time around. Another thing that can happen quite often is if your generator's been in storage for a while, a nice little mouse might have decided to crawl in there, find that beautiful little foamy material, and fill it full of everything they can for a mouse nest. Great place to have babies. So open it up, inspect the air filter. If it's dirty, real nasty, take it out. Try running it with the cover and the air filter out of it. If, if that works, give the air filter a really good cleaning. If you can't get it clean and you're in an absolute dire emergency, run it without the air filter for a while. Not recommended to do for months and months and months, but if it's a difference between having power and not, go with it. All right, number six, and this is the cheapest insurance you can have for a generator, but if you don't have one, it's okay. But your spark plug. Learn how to take your spark plug apart. A bad, burnt up, fouled spark plug can be the worst thing for getting something started. Years ago, I worked on a mower for three hours pulling on it and it wouldn't start. And finally I said, I'm gonna swap out the spark plug. And as soon as I did, it started right up. You wanna pull that out and you got the little gap at the bottom with the two electrodes. If that's full of carbon or all built up, burnt kind of oily gas looking stuff or just black kind of charcoal-y, throw that thing away. Go get yourself a new one. Now, here's the deal. If, in fact, it's a bad day and you can't get out to get a spark plug. If you've got some emery cloth or a really fine nail file, put it between the gap and try to clean off any of that carbon you can. Sometimes that'll get you by in a pinch, but as soon as you can, better yet, keep one on hand. But as soon as you can, swap that spark plug out for a brand new one. You won't be disappointed. Number seven, if all else fails, there's a good chance, especially if it's been sitting for a while with old gas in it, that you've got a gummed up or dirty carburetor. Now, hopefully it's not going to require tearing it all apart. That's a whole nother video for another day. But what we're going to do is, first thing we're going to do, which you've probably already done, was put some seafoam in the gas tank and trying to get it to run. If you can get it to run and let it run through for a while, great. That usually will clean up any kind of mild debris or gunk in the carburetor. However, if that doesn't work, the next thing would be we're going to do is we're going to take the air filter off we're going to open the choke and you're going to spray a little bit of starter fluid in there, close the choke, start it up. Sometimes that can be enough to kickstart the motor to get it running and that will cycle the seafoam through. Try that two or three times, see if that works. If that doesn't work, run to your local auto parts store and pick up some carb cleaner. You're going to do the same. You're going to take the air filter off. You're going to open up the choke 
you're going to spray some carb cleaner in there liberally give it all kinds then you're going to close it you're going to let it sit for 15 minutes then you're going to repeat the process at least one more time maybe two more times and then you're going to try to run it a little bit of starter fluid at the end won't hurt either it might just kind of get it up and running but those are the simplest things you can do to try to get this going i hope if this video helped you once your power emergency is over at the moment come back and message me and let me know because my wife and I in the past were absolutely broke as a joke and I had to learn all of this stuff simply because I couldn't afford to buy something new. So now I try my best to share this with you guys. Okay, so here's one more thing guys. If you've been through all these steps and now your generator's running, well, the biggest thing you can do going forward is to make sure it's always going to run. Two things. Number one, if you don't have one, install a trickle charger. That is just, you'll see the wire right here. All it does is plug into the wall so it always keeps your electric start up to 100%. That thing will help you more than anything. But the other thing you can do is make sure you run this for 15 minutes every two to three months. Three months is fine, just don't let it go longer than that. That is the single most important thing you can do for a generator to make sure that when the wind is blowing, the snow is falling, the rain's coming down sideways, and your wife wants coffee, the babies are crying, you're going to be able to get this generator started. So remember that in three months when it's time to run this thing. So this was an interesting one that, that I just got into uh, this week, and I did send it to the other uh, people that it's addressed to. Let me read the whole thing, and then I'll take my stab at it. Jackie recently put out feelers for expert counsel. I will be hunting mule deer in Colorado this November. Good for you. I'm just a little bit jealous uh, and would like some tips. We'll be staying in an unfinished cabin that is dried in with water and electricity, but heat isn't functional yet. We'll be hunting near San Isabel National Forest. Perhaps Doc Bones could give some outdoor winter medical tips. Dixie will probably have some hiking backpacking tips. Or even Toolman Tim could suggest some gear. We'll be driving in from Georgia, so there's cross-country driving constant to throw in the mix. I know this isn't a typical question you get for expert council members, but I figured it would give them a starting point for some content from Zach. All right, Zach. Well, I did send it to all three of the council members you mentioned. I'm sure uh, at least some of them will have some answers. I have some stuff for you here. I do have some uh, recommended gear, but I don't want to turn it into a T-SPAS segment. So uh, I'll get that to a minimum, but just some things that I would want you to think about. And I'm going to walk through some things and think about this from the standpoint of the fact this is a hunting trip being done far from home in a rather cold and can be harsh climate. Uh, so that's the angle I'm going to come at from this. Now, I actually emailed Zach back because I didn't read the damn email very well and asked him about power. And he said he's taking his generator, but obviously they think they have power as well. Without question, an unfinished cabin, you have no idea what the power situation is until you get there, most likely. Um, I would definitely bring a generator with you. It wouldn't hurt anything to have it, right? And there's other uses for it uh, as well in certain situations. So if you can do it, and he said he's got a Harbor Freight one, he's going to bring good. Go ahead, bring your generator. All right, now let's talk about how I look at this then. This is a cold climate. And November in Colorado can be mild, cold, or extremely cold. You just don't know. Even though you're in a better situation, I'm going to say the way to mentally think about this is to look at it like you're camping in a tent 
with a generator so you have electricity? And how would you try to make sure that you're going to stay warm in that situation? So the most risky thing that you have in this situation is your ability to stay warm. From a standpoint of safety, sure, but also just being able to sleep well, right? Being comfortable, being able to get and hunt hard up in the morning and hunt hard all day and then get back to the place at the end of the day and actually be comfortable. You need a supplemental form of heat. I can't think of something better than a big buddy heater and a grill tank or two, depending on how long you're going to be there, of, uh, of propane and the adapter for it. I have a link to the big buddy heater in my uh, show notes. You can do kerosene in this situation as well, but it's, it's not going to be as clean, easy, and simple as using uh, the big buddy uh, propane heater. Now, when you're running the propane heaters like this, they say not to, r- not to run them with the gas tank in the property inside there's a reason for it and it's it's basically it could be dangerous but it's more protecting them from being sued they don't have a problem with you running it indoors with the one pound cylinders because there's only so much propane in there it's, it, what they're worried about is leakage and if you have a 25 pound tank inside a house and it starts to leak you could have now it's plugged into the heater. It could leak from around the heater. The heater will shut itself off. It has uh, built-in safety that'll do that. But um, I, I, I tend to agree with this. And if I had no choice, I would run it with the tank in. But the, the hose is pretty long, and all you've got to do, and it makes a good sense to have a little bit of a crack in a window anyway when you're running any kind of like propane kerosene heater. Set the tank outside a window. Run the hose through the window heater inside, close the window down until it's just enough to allow the, the hose in. And you'll get far more heat from the heater than you'll lose through the window that way. And it's a good safety mechanism. So I would definitely do that. Next, if I go hunting or go anywhere when it's going to be cold out and I'm going to be outside, I take uh, like the hot hands uh, hand warmers, the little chemical ones. They're basically made uh, out of iron filings and uh, uh, I don't remember what the chemicals is. a chemical that goes in with the iron filings that causes the iron to rust very quickly. Now it doesn't mean instantly but very very fast compared to normal speed that iron filings would rust. It's exactly the same makeup of an oxygen absorber. So a little multitasking thing here is you can take hand warmers and like take a big bucket full of beans or rice or whatever and throw one hand warmer in there and put the lid on it and it will begin to rust and heat up and it will absorb all the oxygen and it will convert the oxygen into iron oxide and it'll take the oxygen out of the atmosphere and that's what an O2 absorber does. So that's how those things work. I have a link to a brand of them that I trust, but I mean, they're all good. It's all pretty much the same. They are lifesavers and they make your life so much better, especially if you're sitting on a stand or something like that and your hands are just cold. One in each jacket pocket, being able to stick your hands in there, you're not going to be cold. You can put them in your boots. I've done it. It helps because they get so much less airflow. It does not work as well, though, right? But definitely keeping your hands warm. And I'm telling you, when, when I'm going places like... Even like a lot of times with workshops here, when, if it's going to be really cold on barter blanket night, I'll have a case of them and just hand them out. Because people, if, if your hands are, if you can keep your hands and your feet warm, you're, you're 90% there to being comfortable even in the cold. So I recommend that. Another thing is when you're hunting, camping, hiking, anything like that, 
Foot gear is so important. So obviously good quality foot gear. A backup pair of boots is not overkill. Um, definitely multiple pairs of socks. Uh, definitely take powder and take care of your feet. But you can end up with damage to your boots and now they're going to leak or uh, not work well. And you're on a hunt. It's probably a big deal. You're taking a lot of time and money out of your life to do it. A $6 tube of shoe goo can save your ass. So I definitely make sure you take some shoe goo with you. Uh, I used it on our last trip that Dorothy and I took uh, hiking in California. And we got out there and a pair of boots that I'd never had a problem with. Both of them all of a sudden started having separation between the sole and the main body of the boot. And a $6 tube of shoe goo fixed it cold. So I definitely make sure you do that. And then some way to cook. You said they have electricity. You didn't say anything about stoves or whatever. Something like the Camp Chef Ranger 2 stove would be something that I would want to take with me. Unless you know you have some other means of, of cooking. And of course, since you're going with other people, you don't have to bring all this stuff. Like You can talk to them, see what they have. You don't have to use the brands I recommend or anything. I just try to give examples so that you know what I'm talking about. But then let's talk about some other things here. I I spent a lot of my youth hunting like hardcore every day that I could. And my favorite thing to hunt was deer and mostly archery, but all of this overlaps. So when I started doing that, I started thinking I need to make sure I have everything I need. So here's what I thought to myself. Okay, Jack, you just released an arrow or fired your rifle. You put a hole through two lungs of the deer. It ran a little bit. It fell over. It's laying dead on the ground. Now what? What do you do? And this is how I built kind of my, my kit of gear that needed to go with me. Well, one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to gut it. So I have to have a knife. I'm going to have a knife on me, no problem. Well, when I gut it, inside the animal is going to be two things that I want to take with me, the heart and the liver. So inside my little kit goes two one-gallon heavy-duty Ziploc bags. And put the heart and liver in one and, put the, and then zip that one up and put that one inside the other one, double-bagged. Zip it up, and you throw it in the body cavity of the deer and drag your deer out. You're going to drag your deer out. You need a drag rope, right? Okay, now I thought, well, what if I shoot the deer, and the deer runs away, and the deer is mortally wounded, but I have to track the deer? Well, I also always carry toilet paper for the reason you carry toilet paper. In another bag, Ziploc, a lot of it, rolled up. Where does this come in with an injured deer? You start tracking an animal. You find blood. You start following the trail. Often you'll lose the trail. You have to go back, re-pick up the trail. When I find blood and I'm trailing a deer that's been wounded, I'll take clumps of toilet paper and drop it on the ground. It's much more visible when I'm trying to re-find my trail. The other thing it'll allow you to do, sometimes you'll see like a little red spot on a leaf and you don't know if it's discoloration or blood. You take a piece of that toilet paper and touch it. If it's blood, you know, and it's something you've shot today, it's going to stain that toilet paper, and you're going to know you're actually looking at some blood. Flashlight, obviously, because you might hit an animal after dark. Then you, okay, so that that's the after effect. Okay, now I'm going hunting, and how am I going to hunt? If I'm going to hunt on the ground, I might want to take one of those uh, foam pads that you basically hang off your ass if you're going to be sitting on the ground because keeping your ass comfortable means you sit longer. The other thing is keeping your ass warm means that you sit longer, and those do both. So that's if we're going to be on the ground. Are we going to be hunting from tree stands? 
If you're going to be hunting from tree stands, if you're hunting from a tree stand that's a portable stand, obviously you're bringing it with you. Okay, no problem. If it's in place, it's in place. No problem. You got to go up the tree. You got a gun or a bow and all your gear. You need another rope, about 25 foot of it with a dog clip on it. And that way you hook all your gear up to that rope. You climb up your tree stand and you pull your gear up. I also always carried a fanny pack when I hunted. And I'm not a big fan of fanny packs. I'm really not, but they're great for all your little gear shit that we're talking about here. When you're hunting and stuff you might need on a stand if you're in a tree stand. This is why you go up in your tree stand, you take your fanny pack, you put it, like you pretend the tree has a waist, you put it around the tree. Now it's just off to the side where it doesn't hit the back of your head, and all your stuff is right there. And I just haven't found it, like hanging a backpack or whatever like that, just not, not as useful as far as I'm concerned. So that's like, you'll never see me in public with a fanny pack, but if I'm in a tree stand, you might well see me with a fanny pack for that reason. Here in Texas, I don't really do that. I just take a little backpack because we have box blinds here, and it's legal to hunt in box blinds. So you're sitting in a little house, basically. When I'm up in a tree stand, it's a different story. You have less room. You don't have wind block, etc. So having all your little stuff immediately accessible. Those are some things to think about. And uh, definitely report back to us after your trip. And also think about what do you do with that animal after you get it back to the cabin. So... If you know field dressing is one thing, but when it comes to skinning, butchering, etc., make sure you have what you need, coolers to bring your meat home and stuff like that. But one of the most valuable tools for processing deer in the field is a sawzall. I love my sawzall when I'm hunting. It is like the best thing in the world. So I would make sure you have a sawzall. And you know, if you have time and it sounds like you do, maybe pick up some of the. Uh, the, the, the stainless steel uh, meat blades, meat and bone blades for a sawzall. You can get those on Amazon. I've talked about them before. Otherwise, enjoy your trip. I'm not going to step all over the other experts on this. I think Tim will have more of a gear perspective, like you said. Dixie may just have some ideas. And then I think it's a good idea to hear from Doc on this because cold weather injuries can be really serious. And I kind of look at things when it comes to like cold weather and hot weather injuries that you should look to a doctor the way that we look to a fire marshal. Sure, they'll put the fire out after the fire starts if they have to, but the real purpose of the fire marshal is to make sure there isn't a fire. And so much that can happen in cold weather situations can be avoided with proper uh, technique and clothing and procedure. Uh, and, and I'd say another thing is maybe consider, given you're going to be in Colorado, now I don't know where, you may be uh, in places with spotty cell phone coverage. You guys may want to take some GMRS or FRS or something like that radios with you. That may be a good idea as well, just so everybody can stay in touch. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Um, I'm going to wrap it here. Uh, without much further ado, other than to remind you, you guys can help support us by doing your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com. I hope I see many of you up in Camden, Tennessee, and I'll be back with you on Tuesday with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. 
show you a better way.